Hello, you are listening to the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Martin Luther's Sermon on Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, preached on Ascension Day. That's coming up this Thursday. It's always the 40th day after Easter, 10 days before Pentecost, the day of the Ascension. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postles. I'm reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio, in 1884, a translation that is in the public domain. First, the gospel or the reading, the text, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passing by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So far the text. Now Luther's sermon. We commemorate this day the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, concerning which we confess in our creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The celebration of this day was therefore instituted not only that we who daily peruse the Scriptures might be reminded of the ascension of our Lord, but also that our children who are constantly growing up around us and that the common people might be taught the ascension of Christ into heaven so that by the keeping of this festival they might learn together with us how it happened and what blessings flow from it. St. Luke gives a full and vivid description of the events of this day so that we become intimately acquainted with the time, place, and persons connected with the occurrence and can clearly understand how it all happened. We are told how the Lord, when he had tarried with his disciples forty days, mostly in Galilee, after the time of his resurrection, during which days he ate with them and taught them of his kingdom, now assembled them on Mount Olivet near Jerusalem and gave them the command, as St. Luke narrates, not to depart from the city, but there to await the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, after which they should go into all the world to preach the gospel. When he had finished saying these things, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He thus ascended on high, with his body of flesh and bone, just as he had stood before his disciples. While they stand full of amazement at this occurrence, at this unheard-of flight of a human body into the air, even as a bird would soar aloft, 
two angels come to them and tell them to return to their homes that now the ascension was completed, that their Lord and Master would not return to the earth again until he came in a cloud, even as he had now ascended in one, to judge the quick and the dead. These are the outlines of the incidents as recorded in the first chapter of Acts and as you, my beloved, just heard from the words of our text. In this event, we ought to notice, first of all, the miraculous manner in which Christ ascended on high, how he went aloft into the air as a bird flies upward and then vanished out of the sight of his disciples. Surely it is an uncommon, yea, an impossible thing for men to fly upward into the air. The human body is not so constituted by nature, is so constituted by nature that it tends downward like a stone or any other heavy material. Now Christ had, after his resurrection, also a real body of flesh and bone, which could be touched, as he himself, as he himself says, Luke 24. Yet it was a body which could, according to its constitution, move upward or downward at will with equal ease. From this fact, we can learn what kind of body we are to receive after death. Now our bodies are heavy, clumsy, and sluggish. But after the resurrection, we shall obtain new bodies, which shall also be constituted of flesh and bone as to all their parts, but which at the same time shall not be heavy nor unwieldy, but as easily transferable from place to place as are now our thoughts. See how this was with Christ after his resurrection. Neither the rock over his grave nor the closed door could prevent his passage. He sweeps through with lightning speed, and no one knows how it happens. He appears wherever he desires to do so, and is invisible at his pleasure. Now he is here, presently he's in some other place. He walks in the air as well as upon the ground. Such excellence is also in store for our bodies after the resurrection, albeit they shall be immortal, no more in need of food or drink, and never disturbed by disease. Let us now consider the reason of this ascension of Christ, what he wished to achieve by it, and how its benefits can be enjoyed by us during our life on earth. The ascension of Christ, his going upwards, indicates, first of all, beyond all doubt, that he will have nothing to do with this world and its kingdoms, else he would have remained here wielding the power of earthly kings and potentates. But he leaves all this below and ascends into heaven where we see him not. By this he teaches us what his kingdom is and how we should regard it. It is not of this world as the disciples at first imagined that it would yield them wealth and power and honor, but a spiritual, eternal kingdom in which he distributes the spiritual blessings to all who are his subjects. Let no one become a Christian with a view of thus obtaining earthly treasures and honors. The office of the ministry, baptism, and the Lord's Supper were not instituted for any such purpose. Nor did Christ come upon earth or ascend again into heaven that he might establish such a transient, temporal, worldly kingdom. He had a higher, nobler aim, which was to bless us with heavenly gifts, with the forgiveness of sins, with righteousness and everlasting life. Such are the blessings in store for us through Christ, who would not remain on earth, but ascended on high to establish a spiritual, invisible, eternal kingdom. This was prophesied long before by the Holy Ghost in the 68th Psalm, to which St. Paul refers when he, Ephesians 4, speaks of the ascension and spiritual dominion of Christ. These are the words of the psalmist. Thou hast ascended on high, Thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. This is a brief but very comprehensive passage which we ought to consider attentively and remember with care. St. Paul does this so beautifully and appropriately when he thus dwells upon the former portion of the passage, 
Now that he, de- he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. How are these words of St. Paul to be understood? Simply thus. Because we derive such glorious benefits from the ascension of our Lord, as we shall hear presently, we ought also to know the source of such grace and blessings. Neither our good works nor saintly life have merited them. On the contrary, Christ alone, by his coming from heaven, by laying aside his heavenly glory when he became man on our behalf, and finally by his death upon the cross, achieved for us the enjoyment of these gifts of grace. To such benefits, St. Paul refers in the words just quoted, in which he speaks of the going down of Christ into the lower parts of the earth. Such expressions are in full harmony with each other, for he who is already on high needs not ascend on high. The declaration of the Holy Ghost concerning Christ, he ascended far above all heavens, indicates, therefore, that he first descended to the earth and humbled himself for us. Hence these words of St. Paul correspond well with those of the Lord himself, which we considered a few Sundays ago. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I do not, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you, John 16. And again, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. The expression, thou hast ascended on high, leads us also to make a distinction between the ascension of Christ and that of others whom it is said that they ascended. Enoch was taken on high by God, and Elijah went into heaven on a fiery chariot. Not thus did Christ ascend. He went on high of his own accord by means of the power and hearing in his person, just as he also arose from the dead by his own power without the assistance of any other. Here then we have a marked difference. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead on the last day, but Christ must do it, John 6. He, however, arose in his own strength, as he says, John 10, Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And St. Peter, referring to the power of Christ in his first sermon, Acts 2, says, It was not possible that he should be holden of death. The same distinction we observe to exist between his ascension and ours. We ascend because Christ draws us after him. He, however, goes on high of his own will and power as he declares, John 3, And no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven. The Holy Ghost pointed out this peculiarity long ago and teaches us thereby to accept Christ as the true, almighty, and everlasting God. When the psalmist says, Thou hast ascended on high, He expresses but the same truth which Christ himself declares before Pilate, as we have seen above, namely, my kingdom is not of this world. We ought therefore as Christians to raise our hearts and thoughts on high and seek first of all with diligence and great anxiety this spiritual kingdom. Yea, although the field of our labor is on earth, where we have our vocation, our family, our cares for the support of our temporal existence and the government of the state and the like, Yet we ought ever to fulfill first this duty, to seek the kingdom of heaven. Do we do it? The greater portion of mankind is so absorbed with soul and body in the transaction of this life that but little attention or none at all is given to the fact that Christ ascended on high. The Holy Ghost therefore earnestly desires to dispel this groveling spirit and to teach us the truth that Christ did not reign on earth, but that he ascended on high, and that consequently we even while we dwell in the body here below, should ascend to him in our thoughts and minds, nor permit the cares of this world to burden our hearts. Thus ought the Christian to distribute their powers. 
The body and the old Adam, as we have stated, may indeed be busied with the temporal work of everyday life, but the heart should be engaged in seeking after the treasures of heaven. As St. Paul exhorts, Colossians 3, Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What does Christ do on high? Why did he ascend and why did he not remain below? Is he idle now or does he do anything? The 68th Psalm, already quoted, answers these queries in the sentence, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive. These words are exceedingly pleasant and cheering, and it would seem as if Christ, referring to this psalm when he says, Luke 11, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusteth and divideth his spoils. We poor mortals are, on account of sin, under the dominion of Satan and death. These two hold us in chains with such power that we are totally unable to free ourselves from such tyranny. The devil unceasingly aims at us his fiery darts and seeks to devour us. The law points out to us our sins and accuses and terrifies our conscience on account of them to such a degree that it must exclaim in bitter anguish, Alas, alas, I have sinned against God and my neighbor and therefore am guilty of death. Against these, our irrepressible enemies, we have no defense, neither of ourselves nor of others, though these be angels or saints. Christ alone is the stronger one. He comes and meekly puts himself under the law for us and is judged by it as the greatest of sinners. He dies upon the cross between two malefactors charged as a conspirator against the emperor and as a blasphemer of God. He thus, as a patient, innocent lamb, bears the sin of the whole world and pays with his own life the crushing debt. Nor does he, in his suffering, manifest his power and majesty. He hangs upon the cross for the very purpose of enduring death. When the law, on account of its unjust sentence, had lost all its claim on Christ and its authority over him, when sin and death, which had thus far ruled the world, were subdued and routed by his death, when the crucified Savior had been laid in the grave and no one had the hope, the assurance, and the consolation that he would arise from it, he bursts forth from the embrace of death in full glory and majesty, as we say, saw on Easter Sunday, and leads captivity captive, as the Holy Ghost here declares. Yea, he breaks the power of the devil, of the law, of sin and death. These now lose their sway, so that the devil can no longer harm the Christians, nor the law accuse them, nor sin terrify them, nor death overwhelm them. In truth, a great and wonderful change. Formerly the devil influenced and led us as he pleased. We were caught in his meshes and thought and talked and acted as he instigated. Hence the law threatened us and he held up before us our crimes. Sin ruled with strength and committed its voluntaries to the merciless, all-devouring jaws of death. This painful, cruel captivity from which none could escape shall forever be led captive. This is the meaning of the 68th Psalm where we there read, Christ has ascended on high and has led captivity captive. He crushed the head of the devil, the God and prince of this world, and took from him his power and cast him into prison, even into the gloomy fetters of hell, so that henceforth neither he nor his angels can injure those who believe in Christ. And though the devil rages with horrible madness and shows his teeth in blind fury, ready to bite like a rabid dog in chains, yet he can do no harm, but can only terrify us a little, for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ holds him bound, a prisoner, a culprit, judged, sentenced, and damned. 
Therefore, the devil has no authority over us, nor can he injure us, but will rather, by his continual lying in wait, make us more cautious to cling steadfastly to Christ the conqueror who crushed the head of the serpent. Otherwise, if the devil did not rave and threaten so furiously, we might become secure and careless. But the enemy is at hand. He neither rests nor permits us to be at peace. This makes us watchful, active, and bold. As the devil, even though vanquished and made prisoner by our great captain Christ, does not cease to annoy and trouble the Christians, so the law does not cease to reveal to them sin in its most hideous character. Thus it works wrath, that is, it accuses, terrifies, and condemns us as transgressors of its precepts. It not only demands of us to lead an outwardly upright and becoming life, to do good works commanded in its tables, but also exacts of us an earnest, ready, and efficient obedience that we should love God with our whole heart and our neighbors ourselves. If we are honest and in our right mind, we must surely confess that we have not even earnestly thought of the law in this light, much less that we have thus kept its precepts, but that we have rather frequently broken them and done those things which it distinctly forbids. Then comes the judgment of the law. Cursed is every one that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If the law be understood spiritually and not carnally, for he who regards it carnally becomes a hypocrite, a proud, sanctimonious pretender who has many and grievous sins which he does not at all consider, the heart which feels its terrible accusations is apt to conclude, Alas, I have not sinned against the emperor or a king or some other potentate of this world, but against the word and command of God, the ruler of heaven and earth. I have maliciously and knowingly neglected his mandates and despised his will, for which iniquity he will most certainly punish me even forever and ever in the abyss of hell. In this manner the law domineers over all mankind with terror, curses, and condemnation, which is indeed an excruciating, intolerable captivity which no one can avoid. Devout and God-fearing souls experience this very often, as many of the Psalms clearly show. The hypocrites, together with a whole crowd of bad, lawless, and wicked men, shall also feel this captivity, if not in this life, during the time of grace, at least in their last hour, to their eternal shame and condemnation. Where then can we find help in this sore distress? Hear once more what the Holy Spirit says through the prophet in the 68th Psalm. He, Christ, has ascended on high and has led captivity captive. That is, he wrenched from the law, which, whether we feel it now or nor till our death, was our greatest enemy, all its authority and power over us. The law exhausted itself when it sinned so wretchedly against Christ its own master, when it condemned him as the greatest blasphemer and rebel to die upon the cross, and declared him accursed. For thus we read the sentence of the law in Deuteronomy 21, For he that is hanged is accursed of God. And the Jews cried out before Pilate, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. But now for and forever the law lies prostrate under the feet of Christ, It is bound, condemned, and executed. Yea, it has lost every vestige of power over those who believe in him. Its curse is removed from these, and they also, through their faith, have it under their feet. All the law can now do is to accuse and to threaten. More it cannot do, for it has lost its sway over us, and its claim upon us is annulled. We have in Christ a Redeemer. Through faith in him we fear not the law. Nor shall it now lead us into despair, for it can no longer condemn. St. Paul speaks of this happy change in precious words, Colossians 2. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, 
which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And Isaiah says in the ninth chapter, He has broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul exclaims, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is busy still. It allures and tempts us to array us against God and to worry our conscience. Alas, often we are weak and suffer ourselves to be deceived and belied by sin, as happened to David, the good and great man who fell into two abominable sins. It is true, he did not continue therein, nor did he suffer death as punishment, for he believed in Christ, the coming Savior of the world, and earnestly repented of his sins so that they were forgiven him. Thus did sin not only lose its power over David, but it even became the occasion of making him more earnest in faith and prayer. If sin, with its distressing consequences, had not overwhelmed him, he would never have composed that beautiful psalm of earnest supplication for pardon, the misery, Psalm 51. Death is also still active. He delights in showing us his fangs and in threatening to devour us. It is but natural for us to be frightened at his approach, but we ask, How is it that death does not accomplish what he desires to slay the Christians? The answer is, death is, after all, vanquished. His power is not unlimited. He is a captive, restrained by the hand of the conqueror, Christ. With all his raving and most dreadful threatenings against the Christians, he accomplishes but this, that they will cling so much the more firmly to the word of God, leaning and keeping its precepts with greater diligence to their great comfort and joy. Otherwise, if death did not threaten, they would not cherish the word of God so dearly and faithfully. These terrors and dangers indeed afflict Christians to a good purpose, but they are by no means harmless. On the contrary, in their nature, they are very baneful, as is manifest in their effects upon the world. But here we see and experience the importance and benefits of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an assurance unto us that these fearful enemies have all been subdued and that they can no more perpetrate upon Christians their wicked designs. Yea, if these were not conquered foes, we would be accused and cursed by the law, condemned by sin, slain by death, and thrust into the lowest region of hell by the devil. Now, however, we fear them not, though they are bitter against us. The ascension of Christ is, therefore, a most glorious and blissful occurrence. It assures us of the defeat and subjugation of mighty enemies, the law, sin, death, and the devil. Christ has led them captive and redeemed us from their grasp. And he ascended on high and sits at the right hand of God for the very purpose of defending his Christians against the assaults of these foes. But this is not all. The psalm continues, Thou hast received gifts for men. That is, gifts for the benefit of men. What gifts are these? We read of them, Joel 2. After those days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And St. John chapter 16. But if I depart, I will send the comforter to you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Similar are are the words of St. Peter, Acts 2. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this by which ye now see and hear. The office of the Holy Ghost is twofold. He brings us in the first place through the gospel to a knowledge of Christ so that we believe the forgiveness of sins in his name. In the second place, he causes us to lead a holier life, 
to resist and subdue sin, and to practice an implicit obedience towards God. Thus will our body and soul, our heart and all that we are, become sanctified and righteous. Though on earth we will never be entirely free from sin on account of our depraved human nature, yet if we have faith in Christ, we shall not be condemned for the infirmity which still cleaves to us, nor will our sin be counted against us. Thus does the Holy Ghost exert his influence in us. And he still does more. He employs us also to bring others to this same grace and knowledge by means of the word and the office of preaching. In this sense does the Apostle St. Paul in Ephesians 4 quote this 68th Psalm where he says that as a result of the ascension of Christ, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Nor are we ignorant of the fact that the devil is hostile to the word, especially in our time when he urges on the infidels and the Pope with their numerous hosts to crush the word and root out all the Christians. But in spite of the raging fury of the unbelievers and the Pope, the word continues upon its course of victory. They are unable to overthrow the power of the word and sacraments. Here we perceive again the efficacy of the ascension of our Lord. He ascended on high to send down the Holy Spirit for the establishing and increase of his kingdom on earth. Another gift is this. God governs and protects his church at all times. He comforts her in tribulation. He rescues her from persecution, guides her into all truth over against falsehood, and gives her an earnest spirit of prayer, as we have heard in the words last Sunday, On that day ye shall ask me in my name, which cannot be done except by the assistance of the Holy Ghost. In short, all that we have and enjoy are free gifts of Christ, the fruit of his glorious ascension. He ascended on high, to promote his kingdom, that through the word and the Holy Ghost his church might be established and preserved. St. Luke, in his gospel, points to this fact in these words. While he blessed them, he was parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This blessing was not a mere expression of goodwill with a parting wish such as we enjoy when bidding each other farewell. He wished them success and joy in the holy office which we had, he had entrusted to them of preaching the gospel unto all creatures throughout the world. This preaching was not ordained on behalf of trees, stones, birds, or fishes, put in behalf of mankind, as is clearly evident from what follows. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Stone and wood cannot believe, nor did Christ give a command to baptize them. As therefore faith and baptism pertain alone to men, so does also the preaching of the gospel. When Christ uses the expression, preach the gospel unto every creature, he means that no calling or position in life shall be excluded from hearing the gospel, that emperors and kings, be they ever so mighty, must hear, accept, and believe this gospel, or else be damned. To such preaching Christ ordains his apostles, and he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. He thus not only wishes them success, but helps them and grants them prosperity and bestows his blessing in the administration of their office. This benediction of our Lord Jesus Christ still continues and is efficacious wherever the Holy Gospel is preached in its purity, so that this preaching is not in vain. This blessing, bestowed upon the disciples by the Lord at the very time of his ascension on high, is full of consolation for us. He thereby invites us to keep in mind his going to the Father and to rest assured under all tribulation that the blessing of his ascension is with us and that he will employ its glorious effects for our benefit. 
If his purpose were otherwise, if he were angry with us and would not use us in his kingdom, he would certainly not have departed on high with those tokens of love toward us. The fact of his raising his hands and blessing over his disciples, thereby promising them all prosperity and success in their holy office to which he had called them, is an assurance to us that the Lord is our faithful true friend, whose blessing is ever upon us as long as the gospel is preached. These considerations teach us, my beloved, what a happy and comfortable day this festival of Christ's ascension is unto us, and what manifold blessings flow from it. Henceforth the Son of God, who assumed our flesh and blood and overcame the law, sin, death, and the devil, sits at the right hand of the Father and protects us against the many assaults of these our foes. They are indeed relentless enemies, constantly on the alert to injure us, and yet they are in captivity, led captive by our ascended Lord. Christ furthermore sends to us his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to protect us from error, to console us in sorrow, to teach us how to pray, and to confer upon us various gifts and graces. Christ ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, says St. Paul and thus expresses the truth that we now have through our Lord all things that we need for time and for eternity. Let us therefore imitate the example of the apostles, as is recorded by St. Luke, who worshipped the Lord and were filled with great joy. Let us give hearty thanks unto our Heavenly Father for his manifestation of mercy, and pray that he may keep us in the true faith, so that in the end we may depart in peace from this world, following our ascended Lord into eternal life and happiness. O Christ, grant us this in mercy. Amen. This has been Martin Luther's sermon on the ascension of our Lord, preaching on the text, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. For more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.